Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. This week, I'd like to begin with a quote. This is a quote from the woman at the centre of this week's case, a woman who survived an absolutely horrific attack back in the 90s. And the quote is, Life can sometimes make us feel like the victim. Problems and hardships and traumas are dished out to all of us, and sometimes they can be divided very unfairly. Remind yourself that you do not have to take responsibility for what others do. Life is not a collection of what happens to you, but of how you've responded to what has happened to you. And I really loved that. Isn't that a really inspirational quote? It really is. Yeah, inspirational is the word. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear what happened to her because that is an amazing attitude to carry forward, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Following something, I guess, that, that is awful that has happened. So, yeah. So a huge thank you to Lisa for the recommendation on Instagram. It was a while ago that you sent that message. At the time, you had just bought Alison Botha's book. So if you are listening to this, Lisa, do get in touch and tell us what you thought about the book. And again, thank you for your recommendation. Before we crack on with today's case, let's say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. A huge thank you to Emma Thornton. Ursula Benjamin. Steffi J. Michelle Watson. Corey Lashes. Becky Daly. Lindsay Murphy, Charlotte, Shona Peterson, and also happy birthday. The Patreon subscription was a birthday gift. How amazing is that? Oh, I love that. Love it. And finally, thanks to Rebecca Clapham. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. And of course, huge thanks to our existing Patreon supporters too. The support we're getting on Patreon is making a massive difference to us. So we are so grateful and there is loads of stuff over there to reward you for your support of the show and your support of us. So if you would like to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes two minutes to sign up and there is, as I said, there's a wealth of bonus content, loads of stuff going on over there, so do check it out. Now, we would also like to do a little shout out. It is friend of the show Janine's birthday this week. She is one of our long-time listeners, but the shout out isn't actually for Janine. No, <laughs> it's for her son, Paul. So hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Thank you for listening and happy birthday, Janine, as well. Yeah, even though she said don't do a shout out for me, we'll do a little shout out for Janine as well. Happy birthday. We are heading to South Africa this week and we are going to Kebeke, which is previously known as Port Elizabeth. At the time of this week's case, that's what it was called. So I've chosen to continue with that name for continuity because business names, news reports, quotes, etc. use Port Elizabeth. Is it also because Port Elizabeth is a lot easier to say? Than Kebeke, yes, absolutely. (laughs) That's a real reason. (laughs) That is the real reason. Colloquially referred to as PE, so maybe even Port Elizabeth's too hard to say, PE, much easier. It is a major seaport. It's the sixth most populous city in South Africa and it is described as the cultural, economic and financial hub of the Eastern Cape. It claims to have the best climate and more sunshine than any other coastal resort in the country. Those are some big claims. Loving it. Can it live up to those claims? Never been. Don't know. But if any of our listeners know the place, please do let us know. Is it as amazing as they say that it is? The woman who spoke the quote at the top of this episode, Alison Botha, was born on September the 22nd, 1967 in Port Elizabeth in South Africa to parents Brian and Claire. Alison's parents divorced when she was 10 years old and Alison spent most of her childhood living with her mother and her brother Neil. 
In her early years, Alison led a fairly normal life. She served as head girl at the Collegiate High School for Girls in Port Elizabeth. And after school, she studied for a year at the former Port Elizabeth Technicon. And then she began working. And at the age of 21, she travelled overseas and she stayed there for four years. After she returned home, Alison found a job as an insurance broker, which she enjoyed. And a well-liked young woman, Alison was surrounded by friends and had a reasonably easygoing and quite happy life. Reading up about Port Elizabeth, it sounds idyllic these days. It is a popular holiday destination. It's renowned for its beautiful coastline, long sandy beaches, as well as being described as one of South Africa's best cold water dive sites. Port Elizabeth is a small, lively city. It has lots of options for shopping and restaurants and bars. It does sound absolutely amazing. And I've never, I've never thought about travelling to South Africa and taking holiday there. One of my sisters is heading off to South Africa soon. Oh, wow. Um, where in March. I'm not sure where. I can't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> a bit awkward. Didn't really pay enough attention. But <laughs> no. she's um, doing some sort of horse riding safari. Oh, okay. Definitely not your kind of holiday. No, but if you're into horses, I'm sure she'll love it. Yeah. So this week's case takes place on December the 18th, 1994. At this point, Alison was 27 years old. She had her own flat back in her hometown and the young woman had spent most of the day soaking up the sun with her friends at a beach. When it started getting late, she invited everyone back to her flat to hang out and enjoy some pizza, play some games, just basically having a great day. At the end of the evening, Alison's guests began to leave and since it wasn't safe to walk the streets after dark, Alison had given a lift home to a friend who didn't have transport. And Alison remembered that she had done her laundry at that particular friend's house, so it all kind of worked out well. She picked up her laundry, dropped her friend off and she drove back home. When she returned to her apartment alone just after three o'clock in the morning, it was completely dark and Alison was a bit put out to find that someone had taken her usual parking space in front of her building. Frustrated, she was forced to settle on a spot that was a bit further away than she would have liked. There were no closer parking spaces. As Alison parked up and leaned over to the passenger seat to grab her clean laundry, she suddenly felt a gust of warm air. A man with a knife had opened the driver's door. Before she had time to react, the man put the blade of that knife to her throat and told her to slide into the passenger seat and keep quiet or he would kill her there and then. Move over or I'll kill you, he said. Alison was terrified, but she did as she was told, hoping that if she complied, he was going to let her go unharmed. As they drove off into the darkness, he told her that his name was Clinton and he simply wanted to borrow her car. He told her, I don't want to hurt you, I just want to use your car for an hour. He promised that he would let her go soon, as long as she behaved, and she believed him. As they drove, Clinton made small talk with Alison. But she was quite savvy. When he asked her name, she lied and she said she was called Susan. And when he asked if she had a boyfriend, she lied again and said yes. He was waiting for her at home right now. And then she said she should probably head back home because the boyfriend was probably getting suspicious and worried. She even offered to take, you know, offered Clinton her car. She assured him that she wouldn't go to the police. But Clinton refused and just kept saying he just wanted some company. I just can't even imagine how absolutely terrifying that must be to just realise someone's opened your car door and they're getting in like you've got no option. Yeah, it's such a such a an alien thing. It's something that doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's it's like how she described feeling that sort of brush of warm air. And why am I feeling that? Because I'm in the car and it's closed and then just 
suddenly realizing that someone's opened the door and now they're trying to get into the car and yeah it's I can't imagine what that must feel like just what's going through your head at that moment and the whole time he's chatting to her and she's just thinking what can I say that might let him get me out of the car and she's really calm to be able Mm -hmm. to think clearly and think you know I'm gonna give a different name and I'm gonna say yes I do have a boyfriend And I am going to say that he's waiting for me and that I need to get back and that you can keep the car, do whatever you want to do. She's doing all of that and it's still not enough to placate him because it's no, I just, I want your company now as well. And as Clinton pulled over into a side street, Alison did wonder for a moment if he was just going to abandon her here at the side of the road in another part of town. How would she get home to her apartment? What would she do? It was just gone three in the morning. But getting back to her apartment was the least of Alison's worries. Clinton was not stopping to let her out. Nope, he was picking up his friend. And Alison later said that when she looked in the rearview mirror and caught a glimpse of the figure in the back seat, that's when she knew that she really was in trouble. Whilst the driver had at least made the effort to fake friendliness up until that point, this new man made her feel like prey. She described his eyes as pure evil. Clinton's real name? was Franz de Troyes, and the second man's name was Tions Kruger. The two men drove a while longer, and then they pulled up in a secluded area just outside of the city. As they stopped the car, Alison just knew that something horrible was about to happen to her. De Troyes and Kruger told Alison that they were going to have sex with her, and they asked her if she was going to fight them. Clearly trapped in this car and terrified for her life, Alison said no. Even if she'd attempted to fight them off, there were two of them. She was outnumbered. The area was dark, there were no streetlights, no houses or businesses nearby. Even if she managed to get the car door open, either one of the men or both of them would have caught up with her before she got too far. And whilst the area was adjacent to the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University's South Campus, no one was out at 3am. No one came to Alison's aid as the two evil men began taking it in turns to brutally rape her. God, Beth, and I, I've got the hairs on on the back of my neck are standing up. It's just to think that this happened to her and that she's got this awareness and they're explaining this is what is mm-hmm. going to happen, this is what we're going to do. Are you going to attempt to put up a fight? It doesn't really matter if you are anyway because we are going to take it in, in turns to rape you. And then that then happens and no one's coming to the rescue. Yeah. And it's chilling. It, it gets worse, Mark. Throughout the ordeal, Alison repeated to herself, it's okay, let them rape me because I can survive this. I've got this. I can get through this. I can go home. I can go to the police. I can tell my family. My parents are going to support me. He is doing this to your body, not you, because he can never really touch you. But rape wasn't enough for these evil men. They then decided that they needed to kill Alison. The two men had a history of violence against women and this time they were going to go even further than they ever had before. And at first they tried to suffocate Alison. But even though she lost consciousness, Alison clung to life. She was then dragged out of the car onto the ground. And here, Dutrois and Kruger took their brutality to the next level. They stabbed Alison at least 30 times in the abdomen. Alison later recalled hearing that Dutrois specifically said he wanted to mutilate her reproductive organs. But somehow the attackers missed those specific parts of her body. She was conscious the whole time, and eventually she just felt no pain. 
When Alison's leg twitched, Dutois and Kruger realised that the job wasn't quite done yet and then they slit her throat 16 or 17 times. Reports do vary as to how many. I don't think it almost doesn't matter whether it's 16 or 17. That is absolutely, or yeah, just she's been, 16 or 17 times. She's been stabbed at least 30 times. She's been suffocated. And then they've slit her throat 16 or 17 times. She's been brutally raped repeatedly by both men, dragged around, and she's still conscious. It's just unreal. Yeah. Alison later recalled, All I could see was an arm moving above my face, left and right and left and right. His movements were making a sound, a wet sound. It was the sound of my flesh being slashed open. He was cutting my throat with the knife again and again and again. Struggling to make sense of what was happening to her, she led on the ground, staring up at the full moon, and she later described this as, It felt unreal, but it wasn't. I felt no pain, but it was not a dream. This was happening. The man was slashing my throat. As the men finally stepped back, Alison heard them speaking in Afrikaans, discussing whether or not they should stop. Do you think she's dead? One of the attackers asked. No one can survive that, the other replied. They made comments about admiring their handiwork and then they decided they were done. Whilst lying there, Alison saw their feet getting smaller, their voices disappearing and then they came back through Alison's clothes almost right next to her, got back into her car and they drove away thinking she was dead. But somehow she wasn't. And she really is just the most incredible woman. I don't know how she had the presence of mind to do this, But she remembered that because the guys thought she was dead or she was going to die, they'd started addressing each other by their real names, Franz and Tian. And as she didn't want anyone else to go through what had happened to her, she decided to write this down for whoever found her dead body. She said, I had to at least leave a clue about who did this to me. She struggled, but she wrote their names in the sand next to where she was lying. And then beneath that, she wrote, I love mum. I just saw that. I'm looking at your notes and I'd seen that line about that note to her mum and just, I don't know, there's just something so guttural about that, isn't there? Because I think in, it doesn't matter how old you are or who you are, really, I think for the majority of us, yeah, even deep into adulthood, when the shit hits the fan and you really need support, it's your mum, isn't it, that you think of, that you go to. And I can completely understand why why it was a mum that she had to leave that note for. I love mum, you know, mm-hmm. so that her mum would find that and know that. But yeah, just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Alison led there on the ground, drifting in and out of consciousness for a while, just expecting to die. But as she led there, she became aware of a strange wheezing sound. She listened to it and then realised it was her. The sound was coming from her severed windpipe. So this in itself was something of a miracle. The brutal attack saw the men slice her throat, like I said, 16 or 17 times, but they missed all of her vital arteries and they missed her voice box. Cutting through her windpipe was actually fortunate for Alison because it allowed her to breathe. So if they hadn't have cut through her windpipe, she would have died. I get it, yeah. It's almost a bit like... A tracheotomy, isn't it? You know, yeah, similar sort of situation. You haven't got anything above that point to be able yeah. to breathe, and this is meaning that she can actually get oxygen still. Because I guess she could have, she could have choked to death and drowned in her own blood at this point, because they've slit her throat so much and they've, 
yeah, there'd be so much blood there. Realising that she was still breathing, realising somehow she was still alive, Alison decided that she needed to try and get help. In the distance, she could see headlights streaking through the bushes, and she knew that if she could just manage to get onto that road, someone might be able to help her. And again, I have no idea how she was able to think so calmly and clearly whilst in an absolutely awful state. But she kind of realised that she was so severely injured, and so she used the denim shirt that her attackers had casually tossed next to her as they drove away, and basically used it to press up against her abdomen to keep herself together she didn't realize fully at this point but her intestines were actually hanging out of it she'd been practically disemboweled and she knew that something wasn't right and that's why she used the shirt to kind of basically hold herself in or almost to act as a abdominal wall again to literally yeah just keep her inside inside i just can't i mean this level of violence and brutality and for somebody to be conscious still it's that's really rare and it's uh, yeah for her to then live to tell the tale and to talk about this it's almost like there's an element of disassociation isn't there at the time Mm -hmm. which is interesting to to hear that because that's what I would assume would happen but that is clearly she kind of feels like yeah this is really happening and has happened but equally it doesn't feel like it has Mm. so I suppose that enables her to keep calm and to think a bit clearly yeah, I just don't know how she did that. It's amazing. And this, this it reminds me already a little bit of um, an earlier episode we did years ago called The Iceman Killer. Mm. Uh, and we've, we've referenced it a few times before. So the murder of Harry and Nicola Fuller. And we talked about the murder of Nicola in particular. She'd ran upstairs away from her killer and he'd shot her in the face. And I think, you know, a lot of her face, like half of her jaw was hanging off and she still had the presence of mind to call the emergency services but then when she attempted to speak that was when she realized actually I can't speak because I don't have a mouth anymore no no voice or any any way to make any sort of yeah and sadly she didn't make it but Mm. we had a yeah brutal understanding of what actually happened to her Alison tried to crawl onto her knees, but it was almost impossible for her to keep everything in place from her abdomen when she was in that position. So she next attempted to stand up. And as she pulled herself up, her head started to fall backwards. She then realised she had nearly been decapitated. So she had to use one hand to keep her organs from spilling out and the other hand to literally hold onto her own head and keep it on her neck. And and without, again, being really graphic i suppose the weight of the head because the head's heavy isn't it heaviest part of the body so in that position of of standing up when her throat has been slashed so much just the weight of the head could finish that job and end up decapitating her yeah so again she just don't know how she does this but slowly alison walked inch by inch until she reached the main road and she later recalled As I struggled forward, my sight faded in and out and I fell many times, but I managed to get up again until I finally reached the road. She knew that the middle of the road was the best place to be for someone to spot her, so she collapsed right there in the middle on the white lines. After a while, she saw a car coming towards her. It wasn't slowing down and she was suddenly scared in case it was her attackers. Surely she hadn't gotten this far for them just to run her over. But it wasn't them. However, the car didn't stop. Did the driver not see her? It seems unlikely with the full moon and headlights of the car. Perhaps the driver was distracted. Maybe they thought there was an animal in the road and they didn't look any closer. 
maybe they were scared and they chose not to stop but now they think back to that moment many times after the judge later described it as the driver looked at her and kept going so i just don't know so i mean she wasn't run over she wasn't no they just no. drove on past right i, I mean uh, e- well not quite equally as bad but i was thinking at this point jesus she's going to be hit by a car but oh, yeah that's God, still yeah. terrible that i mean it's it's almost worse because it is likely that they've actually seen her they've been able to avoid running her over or hitting her but they've seen her and decided not to stop for whatever reason and i think it's hard to know for definite what life was like in South Africa at that point in this particular area. From what I've read, it wasn't, you know, the hu- it wasn't hugely safe. I feel like most cities at three in the morning, it's possibly not going to be that safe. But at this point in the 90s, um, Alison had taken her friend home because it wasn't safe to walk the streets at night, especially for a young woman. So perhaps the driver was themselves a woman and was scared to pull over on a reasonably empty road in the middle of the night you don't know what you're coming across perhaps I just don't know but Alison says in that moment she wasn't mad at that person but she did feel really really sad that they just didn't stop to help her yeah I think you would lose a lot of faith in human nature Mm. naturally how long Alison was in the road for isn't really known because Alison was unable to keep track of the time properly but eventually another car did come by and this time it did stop at the sight of her. In the car was a group of people who were on vacation in Port Elizabeth and one of them was Tian Eled, a veterinary student and he later said God put me on that road that night for a reason. Tian rushed out of the car, got on his hands and knees and immediately took Alison's hand At that moment, she said she felt very safe because there was just something about his face that was so calm, collected and kind. Tian used his veterinary training to tuck Alison's exposed thyroid back inside her body. He quickly took off his shirt and used it to apply gentle pressure to her neck to help to reduce the blood loss. And he told his friends to call the police and an ambulance immediately. To ensure Alison didn't lose consciousness, Tian kept talking to her and helped her work on her breathing. He remained calm, assessing Alison's injuries, whilst doing his best not to panic her. When he moved her denim shirt away from her abdomen, Tian realised the extent of her traumatic injuries, and as he wasn't sure if Alison was going to make it, he decided to do his best to get information about who had attacked her. So he began asking Alison questions, and she would squeeze his hand once for yes, and twice for no. Having to focus on those questions also helped to keep her conscious. Alongside the questioning, which did get him a lot of information, Tian was nattering on about all sorts of random things too, and Alison could tell this was someone doing his best to keep her alive. Her spirit was buoyed, and once again she had the urge to ensure that she would survive. And in a similar note to when we discussed the use of the word victim recently, and we spoke of Victoria Cilias and how she called herself herself a survivor, not a victim, this is exactly how I feel about Alison. It's there's always that debate, isn't there? And I think sometimes it's legitimate to call someone a victim or for them to call themselves a victim. But yeah, this is um, that will to live and to survive. This is phenomenal. Like I don't think we've ever seen this before. No, it was um, yeah, just an incredible story to to come across. And I think it's it's fair to say, not using victim in a derogatory term, but obviously people are the victim of something that happens to them. That is the correct term but in this case she's just the the word survivor she's the epitome of survivor 
I also love how Tian has, you know, she's had that person drive past her and she feels not mad but sad, which I completely understand because they didn't stop and she's probably thinking they probably did see me. And then Tian stops and holds her hand and takes that time with her and I feel like it would have immediately restored her faith in how good people actually can be and actually Mm. even if she died in that road that night at least she would have died knowing that actually not all people on this earth are bad people. Yeah she'd have known that somebody cared in those last moments. The police and the ambulance who should have arrived in 15 minutes took an hour and a half to arrive. What the actual fuck? Still about an hour and a half quicker than in this country right now. But, mm. um, but the thing is, Bethan, we don't know. You know, back in the 90s in South Africa, you don't know about, uh, we don't really know the political climate and the funding of those emergency services or how busy they were. So you can't, yeah. it is what it is, isn't it? It's And you don't know really how what was told to the police as well. We found someone who's in the middle of the road. Do they do they know really the extent of these injuries, I suppose? And my next line I'd written was when the police and paramedics finally bothered to show up. But maybe that is a little harsh of me, but I still feel like an hour and a half is awful. But when they did get there, Alison refused to let go of Tian's hand. And so they were both bundled into the ambulance and transported to the hospital. Alison signed the consent form to be operated on. She wrote her mother's phone number right underneath it and was immediately taken in for surgery. Doctors were absolutely stunned by Alison's horrific wounds. One said that he had never seen such severe injuries in his 16 years of practising medicine. And it was an absolute miracle that Alison survived. Somehow her attackers hadn't cut a single artery, so she didn't die of blood loss. Somehow those throat injuries actually ensured she could keep breathing, like we said before. And the on-call doctor that night specialised in throats, so Alison had the best possible care when she arrived at the hospital. It's kind of an incredible series of things that just kind of grouping together meant that she could survive this. It's almost like she was absolutely meant to survive so she could tell her story and inspire people in, in whatever way she inspires people to fight and to live and to not take life for granted. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's just all these weird little elements and like another odd one, something that happened helped towards saving Alison's life was that while she was being strangled, she lost control of her bowels and she peed herself. And the doctors later explained that if she hadn't done that, then actually either through being stabbed or having her throat cut or any any of the rest of the attack her bowels would have exploded and she could have had a serious fatal infection in her intestines. So that in itself could have killed her. So there's all these small, not small things, but all these bits to this that just group together to mean that, yeah, she, there was a reason she had to survive. When she woke up from the surgery, Alison told the police everything she knew about her attackers. And the men were known to the police already after being arrested twice for different rape charges and they were on bail at that time. Um, of Alison's attack and, mur- and, you know, attempted murder. Rape was not really taken all that seriously in South Africa at the time. So they'd been arrested for rape charges, but were put out back out on bail. And so they decided that they would not leave their next victim alive to report them. And that, that is why uh, 
yeah, people who are accused of rape are generally held on remand awaiting trial. Because, These days, yeah. Yeah, because that it's just going to cause that to happen. They're going to go out and do it again. And this time they're not going to leave the person they have raped alive because they're a witness. Yeah. So it escalates. It's worse. And of course, they decided not to leave their next victim alive, but they had left Alison alive. They didn't realise, but they had. She picked out the photos of the men that she knew were called France and Tians from the police's set of photos. She wrote their names next to them. She couldn't talk because she had a tube going through her throat, so police asked her doctors if this could be removed in order to get a verbal confirmation of the attackers' names as well. For Alison to talk, they had to remove the tube from her lungs through her trachea that had just been operated on because that was going through her vocal cords and doctors said speaking through the tube would be too painful. It might jeopardise the good work that they'd done on her and actually removing this tube meant that she may actually even die. But Alison was determined to bring her attackers to justice. She wrote a note to her doctors demanding that they remove that tube and as soon as she was able to, she then gave her statement again to the police verbally confirming what she'd written. One of the officers tasked with arresting Dutrois and Kruger at an apartment in the city later talked about how they raided that apartment in the early hours of the morning where they found Dutrois and Kruger as well as two women and a baby. And he described the men as bare-chested, very calm and said that they both cooperated. The police searched the apartment. They found the bloody clothes of the men in the laundry basket and the knife that they'd used as well. It still contained spatters of blood. They just had that in a drawer, so they hadn't even really started to clean up or or even think that they were going to get caught, I guess. It must be, yeah, because that real basic stuff, like not washing the clothes or burning them, not getting rid of what they would have presumed would be a murder weapon at this point because they thought they'd left her for dead. They must have just thought, yeah, that no one's going to come for us because she's dead. So there's no witnesses to this. How are we going to be linked to the attack? So therefore, we're not going to make any effort to cover our tracks. And this is at least a day later, if not a few, because I can't find anything to definitively state when they were arrested at that apartment, when when the apartment was raided. But she was found sometime in the early hours of the morning after the attack took place just after three And then how long was she in surgery for? How long until she was able to give the statements? It could even have been a week. And that knife was there in a drawer, clothes in a basket. They just did not think, either think that they were going to get caught or just didn't care. Yeah, because they certainly had time to cover their tracks. They absolutely did. And that officer said, although I was only part of the team that carried out the arrests, it was one of those cases that just stays with you. So France de Troyes and Tiens Kruger were arrested for the kidnapping, rape and attempted murder of Alison. They pled guilty to eight charges, which included kidnapping, rape and attempted murder. When Kruger and de Troyes were sentenced in the High Court on the 7th of August 1995, people descended upon the courthouse. There were so many people wishing to see justice done for such a heinous crime that had shocked the entire community. Mr Justice Chris Jansen told the two accused that he had strong reservations about the sincerity of their remorse and that their crimes had been premeditated and planned. He said that the horrific attack on Alison was like a boy walking with a slingshot shooting birds simply to kill and he referred to the two men's inherent evil. He said it was the court's responsibility to remove these two men from society forever. Therefore he sentenced France de Troyes to three terms of life imprisonment so one for the charges related to each attack, 
and Tianz Kruger received 25 years for the rape of a pregnant woman and a life sentence for the attack on Alison. There is no death penalty in South Africa, but the judge actually said later in an interview, if the death sentence was still an appropriate sentence, I would probably have imposed the death sentence because of the seriousness of the crime. They left her for dead, cut her throat and inflicted more than 30 stab wounds in the abdomen. They thought she was dead. And what I also remember is one of the guys arrested. When he was arrested, he told the detective he couldn't believe she was still alive. Which um, I can understand. Oh, I just do not understand how she survived. It's in, it's absolutely incredible that she did. And he must have just been like, what? She's alive? You wouldn't be able to hide that shock of... No. What? She's alive? It's it's sealing your, sealing your kind of fate because you're admitting that you know what they're talking about. But you couldn't hide that? No, because it would be truly shocking because you were there. This is an orgy of violence and... They know what they've done to her and they've witnessed it and they've partaken in it. And yeah, they must have just both absolutely thought there's no way she could have survived that. Because that's what I'm thinking, hearing all of this. It's unbelievable that she survived this. The judge made an order that copies of the sentences be placed inside each man's prison record so that the authorities would always know that that judge wanted them to remain in prison for the rest of their natural lives. And he said in that in his more than two decades as a judge, this is that one case that really stuck with him. So the three survivors of these awful men, so Alison and the two other women, left the courtroom drained but relieved and satisfied that justice had been done. Now, the two of them had some, like, they both admitted their guilt. One of them, I can't remember which one, tried to say that it was Satan had kind of, a demon had possessed him or something. The judge basically said, you're just being stupid here. They both tried to say that they had remorse for what they'd done. But as Kruger was taken out of the courtroom, he banged his fist on the wall and he yelled, well, here we go. Fuck you all. So it really showed that he had no remorse. He had no real care about what had happened and... That remorse was just a lie to try and get a lighter sentence. Due to a political decision in South Africa, all prisoners who were sentenced prior to October 2004 were then told that they would be eligible for parole. So even though the judge who had sentenced both men had not wanted to allow them that option, um, there was like a difference in the law. So in October 2015, the courts determined that they would not be out on parole, but they would have the chance of parole every two years. And after serving 28 years, both men were granted parole in July 2023 and placed under supervision. The Department of Correctional Services said that the parole structures exercised due diligence in assessing the parole eligibility for offenders sentenced to life imprisonment. And it released a statement confirming France Dutois and Tians Kruger have been admitted into the system of community corrections, whereby they are expected to comply with a specific set of parole conditions and will be subjected to supervision for the rest of their natural lives. On her Facebook page, Alison wrote that the day I hoped and prayed would never come. When I was asked, how will you feel if they ever get parole? My immediate answer was always, I'm hoping I'll never find out. The news that the men had been released on parole shocked the country and the judge from the original trial, so Chris Jansen, did say, and I think this is very fair, at the time I set out all the facts and gave a verdict that they should be imprisoned for life. We don't know what happened to the people in the prison. They could have been completely rehabilitated and turned out completely different people, so that's for the parole board to decide. 
If the parole board had asked me before they considered it, I would have said exactly the same thing. It's out of my hands and I did my job. So there we go. What what a story. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's just it's really hit me this one and they're all awful the cases that we cover, but yeah, I just think that level of violence is just it's a whole different level to what we normally encounter and normally when someone is the victim of so much violence they don't live to tell their story so that's what is so unique here we we kind of hear this from first person account of exactly what happened and that's we don't often get that testimony so yeah it's all the more shocking Mm. i thought i'd finish with a few facts about the aftermath of this case so Alison was told after the surgeries and after everything that had happened to her that she'd never be able to have children due to the extent of her injuries. But she got married and she went on to have two sons. And Tian, the one who found her in the middle of the road, decided not to become a vet after that night, but to be a doctor. And he ultimately trained and became a gynecologist. And he was the one who delivered Alison's second son. During the attack, Dutois had specifically tried to destroy Alison's reproductive organs and Alison said of the birth of her first son in 2003, that was his intention, which is what makes this news so positive. I just loved that as well. Like, you tried to do this to me, so this is the biggest fuck you is, I'll have a son then, I'll have two. Yeah, it's it just really is. amazing. Yeah. To aid in her recovery, Alison knew that she needed to face what had been done to her head on. So she began travelling around the world, telling her story in at least 35 countries. She was one of the first women from South Africa to speak publicly about rape in both her home country and abroad. She helped inspire other survivors to come forward and tell their stories as well. She's won numerous awards. She has written two books and there has been a film made about her. And her story stands as both an example of human depravity, but also the strength of human spirit. Alison Butter is now revered worldwide for her motivational speeches, and I just think she's an incredible human being. Yeah, it's honestly, that is such an inspirational story, isn't it? That she's gone through all of that and spoken about it. And yeah, I can imagine to hear her tell her story and be there would just be unbelievable. Mm. so there we go guys thank you for joining us this week um please do share your thoughts on this case um on our social media or chuck us an email if you want to and if you also have a recommendation for an episode let us know we quite often get recommendations and we do we do work through them if we can we do i always add them to a list to look into in a bit more detail and it's a massive list so yeah thank you for all the recommendations so far and uh yeah we'll continue to explore those that are on the list and add new ones to it too so yeah thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode so we will see you then see you then guys bye Bye.